Man, I wish that I could truly explain how thankful I am for what we get to do here week after week. And, you know, as I've thought about this year, there has been so many times that I've just thought to myself, God, there is no reason that we should still exist today in November 1st of 2020. With everything that's happened, you know, the odds have been stacked against us since the very beginning three years ago. And God has been so unbelievably gracious that I feel like for me, and I apologize for, for times that I've taken it for granted. And just the thought of like the blessings of God that we step into, that we're meeting in borrowing someone's gym as we come into this place and we just welcome the presence of God just among us and within us. We are so broken and so unworthy of his presence, but he is here with us this morning. And it's not because of me, but it's because that you guys have, have just saw fit to continue to gather and to come and listen there. This, all this is so little about me and just so much about God. That's why week after week, I just say, look, we're just going to give you this. You know, I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, listen, I can't all a couple of TV speakers in a gym and we're just going to preach the word of God and see what it does because I believe that greater than any other thing, greater than personalities, greater than entertainment, God's word is where it's at and that's where life change comes and, and I just thank you for giving me the opportunity to just share time with you to read God's word. You know, just a, a family of people. And, man, I love you all so much. And, you know, it's, it's so often that in my own brokenness and my own sin and my own failures that I'm just so thankful and just reminded about the family of God that I'm given and that we have. And, man, I, I, I thank you for the gifts. I really do. But even more so, I thank you for your presence and for your prayers. And I pray uh, your desire to really lean into what I truly believe that God has for us. You know, I, I'm constantly thinking and praying, you know, as we're talking about, you know, we're reading a book or, uh, on discipleship uh, that the elders are. And, you know, as I'm thinking about the longevity of our, of our church, you know, our heart and our desire is I pray that we grow up the next pastor for this church from within the church. After I'm dead and gone, I pray that our church is still doing what God has for us. And uh, man, I, I'm, I'm in it to win it. And I believe God's got so much he wants to do and God has provided us with so much in you in the ministry that he wants to accomplish through you and through us together so again just thank you and um, I'm going to get into what we're really here for but man thank you so much Galatians chapter 3 as we continue our study titled grace to you as Paul's heart and desire and his fight for the churches in the region of Galatia was that the grace of God is at the very center of the gospel and it's by grace alone through faith alone yesterday uh, was Halloween and I hope that you had a, a great time with your families and friends uh, but also it, it was Reformation Day it was a celebration of that over 500 years ago uh, a man stood amongst a group of, of people a group uh, a church and said listen uh, uh, God's word is not being interpreted properly. God's word and the grace is not being cared for and distributed properly. And uh, it's from that moment to now that we stand and we celebrate what we do. And, and this is Paul's heart and his fight. You are going to hear the words grace, faith, and law so many times over the next several weeks that you're going to be completely sick of it. But the thing that I hope and I, pr and I pray is that when we're done with this series going into the beginning of next year, that we will truly embrace and understand what it means to be saved by the grace of God through faith in the Son of God for the salvation of our souls and how that not only gets us into the door, 
but it's what actually carries us through, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, if we could read that together. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by all the nation, uh, by, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Let's pray. Father God, again, we just thank you for this opportunity that we have. God, we thank you for the revealed revelation of your word. Father God, I pray that you would allow it to speak to us, soften our hearts and minds. God, allow us to truly be challenged, convicted, and Lord, just encouraged to step forward into the goodness that you have for us. God, we, we ask your forgiveness for where we failed you. Lord, and we rest in your forgiveness where you say where, where we ask for your forgiveness. You're faithful and just to forgive. And Lord, so clear our hearts, clear our minds. Let us receive what you have from us for us this morning. Father God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So church, as we continue to look at Paul's kind of defense of true Christianity and a fight for the freedom that we have in Christ, what we've, what we've been doing and what we will continue to do is to help understand what it means for a Christian to, to see the legal standing that we have before a holy God. And, uh, and, and, and Paul continues to kind of, kind of enforce this idea. You know, in what Paul really wants to bring home this morning, you know, if I could subtitle this this morning, it would be grace for every day. Grace for every day. Because what Paul continues to remind them of is as it seems that they've forgotten. They've forgotten that the gospel of grace isn't only what gets us through the door, like we said. It's not only what gets us through the door, what brings us into the family of God, what allows us to find a seat at the table of God, but it's also the very thing that carries us through, that helps us to walk through our life. And I think this is where a lot of Christians, where we, get, where we miss it, where even as churches we can fail to properly present the gospel to the people of our church, is where we, we, we are so heavy on the gospel and, uh, say, calls to salvation. You know, you've been to revivals or these things, and, and an evangelist comes in and he's just presenting the gospel in these ways, and he's saying, God has called you. He's, he he called, says, bring your burdens, lay them at my feet. You know, he's, he's forgiven you as far as the east is from the west. All these things, they present the gospel in all these ways. And then you come and you embrace the gospel. And then when you begin to walk in that Christian life, 
the failure of Christians and of the church at times is that we forget that the gospel not only applies when we first come to Christ, but the gospel is that very thing that carries us to Christ through our entire life. As we're sanctified, as we're, worked through and we're working through this process, we forget this, and this is where we miss out. This is where we miss out on tapping into the power that God has for us, the confidence that we can walk into as Christians, because if we're honest with ourselves, there have been times in our life where we've embraced the very grace of God in the beginning of our Christian walks, maybe, or you've embraced it or, or, or feel like you've understood it or realized it, and then as you've moved through the progress of your life, what do we find ourselves holding on to again? We find ourselves grabbing back a hold of guilt. We find ourselves grabbing back a hold of shame. We find ourselves grabbing back a hold of legalism. We find ourselves grabbing back a hold of these things like we talked about uh, several weeks back, backloading the gospel where, yeah, there, mustn't, there wasn't all this expectation beforehand, but now, because you're saved, now grace is out the window, and so you better not mess up. You better not make any mistakes, and you better adhere to these rules and these regulations where God says, listen, the grace of God isn't that thing that gets you in. That grace, the grace of God is that thing that carries you through. And Paul is going to really begin to settle into this. And over this next, these next two chapters, you're going to hear a lot of doctrinal talk about grace and about faith and kind of seeing the law. And, and, and I love how Paul, he uses the first part of the letter to tell him how much he loves him, to really show this pastoral love and care. And then how does he start off verse 3 as he begins to talk about the true nature of the gospel of faith? He says, Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, I don't know how, how y'all would feel if I came in here and just the first word out of my mouth is that all of you are fools, you know. But I love how Paul really shows us that even in his very blunt statement that pastoral care comes with blunt honesty sometimes because some, we have to understand the nature of where we are. And so Paul, he's done so much to reveal to them who God is and what God has done. But then in this verse, uh, in, in verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. And I believe there's two things this morning that we can see. As we begin to understand that there is grace for every day, not just grace for the day when I got on my knees and asked Christ into my, uh, into my life. It's not just grace for the day that, uh, that I sinned and that I asked for forgiveness, but it's grace for every day. It's a grace that carries me through. It's a grace that carries me through every moment. And there's two things this morning I want us to see. The first thing is that faith is a process, not a moment. That our faith in Christ for salvation is not a moment, but it's a process. And so he tells the Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This word foolish can also be translated as thoughtless. Or it's this idea of someone who can think, but fails to use their power of perception. Or someone who is spiritually dull. This is not someone who lacks intelligence, but a lack of obedience. You know, when the Bible talks about being foolish, it's talking about it in a sense of being disobedient to what you know or what you've been told. Uh, Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So he tells them, he, he tells us, when, when Paul says, oh, foolish Galatians, he's basically saying, oh, you people who are in slavery, oh, you people who are giving yourselves to lesser pleasures, oh, you people who are hating each other and, and hating yourselves, oh, you people, how much are you missing out on? You are not free, but you're slaves. And so he tells us, when we've moved away from the obedience and understanding of the gospel of grace, we move back into this place of foolishness. We move 
move back into this place of slavery. And that is not what Paul wants for us. And that's not what uh, Paul, when he's writing to Titus, what he wants for the church there that Titus is the elder of. He's telling them that in your foolishness, in our, our disobedience, we are moving back into slavery. And so how has this foolishness come about? Well, he tells us here in the next phrase, he says, who has bewitched you? And this word bewitched, it could mean being misled by flattery or being uh, uh, misled by false promises. You know, and in some of my uh, study, when, when they're saying this, this word of bewitched can also be kind of translated into evil eye. And so what is the idea of this evil eye? Well, uh, in, in their culture, they would believe, they believed that you could, uh, that a serpent could hypnotize its prey with its eyes. You know, that a serpent could hypnotize its prey with its eyes. Therefore, uh, you know, when, when, uh, the, once the victim looked into the evil eye, this word bewitched also can be translated evil eye, when it would look into the evil eye, a spell could be, passed, uh, could be cast on him. And so, therefore, the way that to overcome the evil eye was to simply not look at it. And so what he's saying here is, oh, foolish Galatians, how have you been misled? How have you fallen into the evil eye? And so we can know because the, the way that they interpreted that is because they looked into the eye and the eye hypnotized them. And so for us, Paul, the way he's phrasing this, he's painting this picture that the Galatians have basically taken their eyes off of the always and steadfast love of Jesus. That you've taken your eyes off of the grace of the gospel that I have presented to you initially. Because remember, the Galatians, they're confused because Paul came in and brought the gospel of grace to them. And then not long after he had left, the people they called Judaizers came in and they were taking Jewish traditions, which were works-based, were based on ceremonies and uh, circumcisions, these things. They were taking these things and they were meshing them together with, uh, with the gospel of grace. So they were saying, yes, it's grace by faith in Jesus, but it's also these things. It's also being circumcised. It's also following these ceremonies. It's also doing these works that are laid before you. And so Paul is speaking against that and he's telling them the reason that you're confused, the reason that you're spiritually dull, the reason is because you've been misled by false promises and those false promises have taken your eyes off of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, a, a verse that you'll be familiar with, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that he has set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The founder, the one who initiated it, the one who started it, the one you began with, the grace that you knew initially, but not only the initiator of it, the founder of it, but then that word perfecter, the continuation. And we'll get to that word a little further down as Paul reveals that to us more. But then he says, he says, he, he basically tells them you had no excuse in Galatians 3.1. He says, before your eyes, Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You know, he's basically telling them it has not been hidden from you. And he's not saying to them that you have physically seen with your eyes that Jesus was crucified. Because in that, if he was saying that to them, then we could feel a little disconnected from that, right? We could say, well, I haven't seen Jesus be crucified. I haven't seen him rise again. But these people had not physically seen Christ be crucified. So what he's saying is you have seen Christ be crucified through the revelation and the revealing and the preaching of God's word that Paul says, I did. I came and presented the gospel of Jesus crucified for you. I came and presented the gospel of grace to you. And, and, and you, you saw that and you responded to that and you acknowledged that. 
He's telling them, you know, and, and the thing that we have to understand and really uh, know and walk in in the gospel in our life is that the gospel is a proclamation of what he has done for us before it is direction of what we must do. The gospel, he wants them to know. He says, that's why, that's what I, I presented to you. I need you to know what Christ has done for you. Because in the reality and the reason why, the reason why Paul writes this letter, the reason why that I just so heavily lean into a gospel of grace is because our hearts are moved when we see not just that Jesus died, but that he died for us. When we understand that Jesus died for us today, that he died for them and he died for us. And there's a big difference between just the understanding that Jesus died than understanding that he died for me. Because then in my failure and my weakness and all that I've been and all that I've done and all that my sin and all of my ignorance, that I could look at that and say, Jesus died for me? And in understanding that, if we'll be honest with ourselves and our failures, then we can say, then we can know that that is grace. We can see the true revelation of just understanding that Jesus died for me. And then in, in your life, you can say, Jesus died for me. Romans ten seventeen it says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of God. Church, it's through the hearing of the gospel. Faith comes through the presentation of God's word. Faith comes through the revelation of what Jesus has done for us, and by no other way. You know, and, and Paul says, even in that preaching, that it may cause issues sometimes. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. but we preach Christ crucified. It is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You know, so just like for them, it's not a lack of hearing the message are seeing it through it being revealed through the word but it's this place that we come to as Christians where we're distracted where we find ourselves being drawn away by lesser things where we, we maybe we believed in the gospel of grace at one time and that was enough to kind of get us in the door but then now we kind of feel as if well God, the gospel the grace the God's grace giving me what I don't deserve just got me there now I have to kind of figure this out in my own work. I kind of have to figure this out in my own strength. But, but Paul is telling them it's not just what gets you in, it's what carries you. In Galatians 3.3, 3, he says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being, there's that word, perfected by the flesh? Just like it was in Hebrews 12, it's the same it is here in Galatians 3.3, 3, that that word perfected means completed, which communicates a work in action. Not something that is finished, but something that is being done. So he tells them, he says, did you begin by the Spirit of God, but now being perfected by your broken, frail flesh? Being completed. That, so now do you believe that because God did this for you, that the work you're now doing is in your own flesh or in your own strength? Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, uh, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion or will perfect it at the day of Jesus Christ. So he says, he says, it's not in the flesh, it's not in my strength, it's not within the frailty of my sin that I grow more like Jesus, but he says it continues to be by the Spirit. It continues to be by what he initiated. It continues to be by how you came to Jesus to begin with, by the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit does not work apart from the gospel of grace. The way the Spirit has entered our lives is the same way the Spirit advances in our lives. And that we are not just saved by the gospel, we're 
applying the gospel to every area of our lives, the Spirit works as we apply and use the gospel in our lives. The Spirit continues to work. The Spirit continues to reveal. Now, the reality is, the thing that we have to understand and we have to acknowledge is that the Spirit can be quenched. That even though the Spirit can't be removed from us within our Christian life, and I think this is where a lot of us as Christians, we may find ourselves at times, is when the Spirit within us is quenched and those views that we have of God and the gospel of grace begin to get dim and we begin to lose focus. And then that's when our sight is bewitched or that's when we're drawn away. That's when we're tempted by false promises. That's when we're led astray by other things is when the spirit within us is quenched. And so maybe we can ask ourselves, well, how are some ways that the spirit within us is quenched? In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it says, do not quench the spirit. How is the spirit quenched within us? And I truly believe it's by neglecting spiritual disciplines that God's given us. Whether it's, uh, it's gathering here. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's true. Being here does not make you a Christian. But being here is how our spirit is, is fueled. How the fire within us is stoked. How we continue to see and hear and preach the gospel to ourselves. And be reminded that even in my frailty, God forgives me. And that even in my frailty, God has purpose. And he wants to use me and utilize me and take my gifts for better things. It's only in the context of a faith family that we can have people that step in around us that when we're broken, when we're failing, when we're frail, that a brother or sister in Christ can lean up next to us when we're here gathered amongst God's people and say, hey, can I pray with you? I'm here for you. Man, I, I know you're having a bad week. I know you're having a bad season. And it's only in the context of this local gathering. So I think neglecting, even as Hebrews would tell us, neglecting to gather together can quench the spirit. You know, I... I, this year has been so tough with coronavirus and, 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 and hurricanes and all these things that have kept us apart at times. You know, and I'm thankful for, you know, online and thankful for anyone who's listening online right now. But, man, it cannot take the place of the local people because it's within this context that our spirits are stoked and that fire, that, that, that spirit grows within us and keeps our eyes focused on what he's done. And so what has he done in the spirit? The Spirit is how we are born again. The Spirit is how we're born again. That we're baptized into Christ in, in His death and in His resurrection. But also, the Spirit is evidence of our salvation because of how it empowers us. How it leads, guides, and directs us. How it communicates to us in the midst of uh, potentially sinful situations. It's that voice in our, in our hearts that tells us, man, steer clear of this. This is not good for you. It's that discerning spirit within us that tells us that that preacher is not tr preaching biblical truth. You know, it, it tells me that this, that this teaching or this doctrine is not right. This is not gospel-driven. This is not what God has for me. And not only is it evidence of salvation, but it's also and part of our conviction, but it's also our assurance of salvation. The Bible tells us that when we have the Spirit of God, we have the seal of the promise of God. That we are eternally sa saved. We are eternally sealed in Him. You know, when the Spirit is quenched, we begin to lose sight of those things and lose connection with those truths. That God has saved us despite who we are and despite where we've been from. That He has saved us. He has brought us into His fold, into His family as sons and daughters of God. And that He has purpose and provision for us. But when our Spirit is quenched, we lose focus of those things looking for other ways of completion we begin looking for other ways of completion other than continuing to walk and rest and stoke the fire of the spirit of god within us 
And that is how we find ourselves misled or bewitched. And then what we begin to lean into, we begin maybe with Jesus as our Savior, but when we lose sight, something else becomes our functional Savior. It becomes our functional perfecter. It becomes our functional completer. And we move away from the gospel of grace. Anytime we move away from Christ being our Savior and move to other functional saviors, we begin to lose sight of grace and we begin to lean on our own strength. We begin to lean on our own works. And that's when as Christians we get discouraged. We just say, ah, God doesn't want me at church. He doesn't want me serving in ministry. He doesn't have a place for me. He doesn't want me around those people. Those people are too good for me. Those people don't make mistakes. I make all the mistakes. Then the spotlight, we feel as if the spotlight is on us. And we feel like that our sin is so much more horrible than everyone else's that there's no way God would want me in his church and you know what unfortunately us as Christians sometimes we make people feel that way there's no place for you here you've sinned too much you've done too much wrong there's no way God would ever want anything to do with you and then that's when us as Christians contribute to the quenching of the spirit of those who have been saved by God's grace as we look to Christ crucified we're reminded of the gospel of grace and the spirit will work in us to replace our functional Savior with the Savior. Take our functional Saviors and replace them with the Savior. That's why we are called and should constantly preach the gospel to ourselves and understanding that when the Spirit of God is within the child of God, that it does not leave us nor forsake us, and that it is the guarantee of our perseverance. Acts 15, 8, it says, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. The God who knows our heart gave us spirit. Romans 8, 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So in having the spirit, we belong to him. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So not only is faith a process, not a moment, but also then the last thing this morning, faith was possible before the law. Faith was possible before the law. You know, and the question that comes out a lot of times is, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved if they didn't have Jesus? How, was the pe how were people in the Old Testament saved before Christ was crucified? You know, the reality is Jesus has been there since the beginning. But what Paul continues to do is he begins to show us, which is just so awesome. He begins to show us the scriptural evidence for salvation by faith alone. Because before the law was spoken into being, before the law was, was spoken to the people, he reveals to us how God was working even in the beginning. He says in Galatians 3, 6, he says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's referencing a moment before the law existed in a way that men could follow and read. Genesis 15, 6 is, is where he's going back to here. And this is uh, talking about Abraham. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
Romans 4, 3, Paul would write, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So when we say counted to him as righteousness, what are we speaking of? We are speaking of the very exact same act that happens when I put my faith in Jesus. That is the same thing that God counted to Paul, I mean counted to Abraham in the very beginning, before Jesus was crucified, before the law, that righteousness was counted to him. Remember, when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about man's place before a holy God, the legal standing of a man before a holy God. And when we say someone is righteous, we're saying they're justified. And when we're saying they're justified, we're saying that a holy God looks at that man or that woman and says that you are acquitted of your sin and that the guilt is no longer on you, not past, nor present, nor future, that you are done with that. And so this very same act is happening. When we say counted to him, we're saying that he has declared that it is accounted. We're saying kind of the idea of almost like a banking, a financial term, that money is being received and counted as payment toward some end for someone else. You know, it's almost this idea of, uh, of leasing to own, or renting to own. You know, every bit of money that is put forward is going towards a purchase. It says that because Abraham believed in God, that it was counted to him as righteous, that his legal standing before Jesus died, before Jesus rose again, his legal standing before a holy God was righteous. God is treating Abraham as if he were living a righteous life. But the thing that we have to know is that the text doesn't say that his faith was righteousness. There's a, a big difference. He's, he is not saying that his faith was righteousness. It says rather his faith was counted as righteousness. And there's a difference there because if his faith was righteousness, then it would say that his faith within itself was enough to make him righteous. That his faithfulness was equal to But it's not saying that. It's saying that faith was counted to him as righteousness. So this is a faith outside, a righteousness outside of him that is being applied. This is a righteousness that is not his own that is being given to him. And sometimes maybe you've heard it say the imputed righteousness. And so what is done in impu imputation is that something is being taken from someone else and is being copied and pasted onto talk about it as believers in Jesus, we talk about the imputed righteousness of Jesus. We are saying that the righteousness of Jesus is copied and pasted on Jake so that when God looks at me, he does not see my righteousness or my filthy rags, as the Bible would call my righteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees the holiness of Jesus. He sees the Son of God. He does not see me anymore. And that every work I do, even my best work, are not before a holy God where he says, man, Jake, you're just killing it. No, he always sees Christ's righteousness in my success and in my failures. Christ's righteousness is the only righteousness that is holy enough to get me to the table of God. And we see that same application for Abraham before the law. This is before the Ten Commandments. This is before Egypt. This is before all of those things. When Paul says, and, and, and the writer of he, um, uh, Genesis says, he says it counted it to him as righteousness. That it, righteousness was imputed or given to Abraham. That it was not his own, but because he believed. 
read a quote this week. It says, to account him a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. Which, how we can understand that to know this, that it is possible to be loved and accepted by God while we are sinful and imperfect. Isn't that freeing to know that? That it is possible to be loved and accepted by God even in the midst of our sinfulness and uh, imperfections? Martin Luther said this as he described Christians, that we are simultaneously righteous and sinful. We know this because Paul would write in Romans 4, 5, he says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is counted as righteousness. When a person receives credited righteousness, he is justified. He or she is still wicked. We are still wicked sinners even after we've been saved by the grace of God. Does it mean that we have to walk in that anymore? Absolutely not, because that's the beauty of walking in the righteousness of Jesus and being indwelt by the Spirit of God, that the Bible, we're no longer bound to be slaves to sin. That we can walk in righteousness. That we can live in holiness. And that even in our failures, that the holiness God has given me through the imputation of Christ's righteousness is not gone. It is still there. I'm accepted, not because of what I've done, but what Christ has done on my behalf. And so it's within that confidence that it's not an excuse to sin, but it's a reason to step out from under my fear. It's a reason to step into my community. It's a reason to kneel down with my kids and tell them about a holy God who loves them and has provided a way for them. That even though it's no question that my kids could say their daddy is not perfect, but you know what? I never present myself as perfect to them. I never, I never tried to convince him that I've got it all together. Listen, they know that I'm broken. They know that I have my issues, as do we all. But I also am able to take the opportunity to remind them that even in the midst of my failures, God has saved me and he has equipped me to do something as he does for each and every one of us who call ourselves believers. Church, we don't clean up our life in order to earn credit and righteousness. righteousness. Rather, we receive it even while we are sinners. In Galatians 3.8, he says, God would justify Gentiles by faith. Remember, when we talk about Gentiles, we're talking about ourselves. We're talking about those who were in the Old Testament, not initially born into the fold of God. But what is so awesome about that statement is that it reveals to us that even from the beginning, God had a plan to take an exclusive message of Christ alone, by faith alone, by, through, by grace alone, and make it exclusive for anyone who would believe. Because listen, if, the, if, if, if salvation was by the law only, then the Gentiles, who were us, would not be included because we would not have the law. The only people who had the law were the people that were in the, the, the part of the children of Israel. And so if God's plan from the very beginning was to only have those who would have be saved, only those who would have the opportunity for salvation to be those who had access to the law, then our entire nation would be excluded. But God had plans to take an exclusive way and make it inclusive. That the exclusive way to salvation is through Jesus. 
But the inclusive invitation is that it's available to us all if we'll believe. If we'll believe what Christ has done and who he's done it for. The gospel message is, is an exclusively inclusive message. And it's through Christ alone, but for anyone who would believe and for all who would partake of the promises. And so as we finish up, church, why does this matter? The thing we have to understand is that Abraham is the greatest scriptural evidence of salvation by faith. The greatest scriptural evidence of salvation by faith is in Abraham in the book of Genesis. I encourage you to go back and read the story of Abraham. It's amazing. Just even in the midst of God giving Abraham promises and in his failures uh, to go step out on his own and to try to accomplish the work that God said he was going to do for him, to fail and to fall and that God still choose to use him. And then Abraham fail again and that God still choose to use him. Abraham was the greatest scriptural evidence of salvation by faith. When there was no law, there was no circumcision, just faith. You know, and so, so to make a little application for us, when we say, say circumcision, for instance, the Jews believe that circumcision, that was one of the things they were teaching. Circumcision, you had to be circumcised to be saved. You know, the, the equivalent for that, for us, would be baptism. The baptism is the New Testament form of circumcision. And so for us, and for, you know, if we were to say that salvation is dependent on your baptism, then we would be, in a sense, adding to salvation by grace, right? Be salvation by grace and make sure you're baptized. Listen, there are churches that teach that. It's those things that we have to be aware of. That are, that are vital for us to understand in grasping onto the gospel of grace. Not that baptism, or even as they would teach later on, that circumcision is wrong. And we should be baptized because it's an outward expression of an inward change. It's what God has done for us, but it is not, it is not required for the salvation of our souls and the forgiveness of sins. And so what does this mean to have faith like Abraham? In Galatians 3, 6, we see what it means. He says, as Abraham believed God. Notice it does not say that he believed in God. It says that he believed God. Church, you can't, you can't believe God without believing in God, but you can't believe in God without believing God. Right? We can believe in who God is and not believe what God has said and what he said he's going to do and what he has done in our life. You know, I think about this in the sense of my kids. My kids can believe in me, right? They can believe in my existence. They can believe in what I'm doing. They can believe in uh, that, you know, who I am, that I have no hair, that I have facial hair. They can believe in me. But do they believe what I tell them? Do they believe that I'm going to provide for them? Do they believe that I love them? Do they believe that I'm going to keep them safe? You know, we can believe in God, in the existence of a creator. But if, like my kids, if we lived every single day of our lives as Christians not believing the promises of God, 
being in fear of, does God really want me? Does God really have a place for me? Does God really forgive me? Does God really, will God really empower me and instruct me? Will God really use me? Am I really saved? Like if we live, my kids lived in constant fear of my love or my protection or my provision, how miserable would their lives be? But for too many of us as Christians, we live in that space. That, yeah, we believe in a God, but do we believe God? When God says that you are a son or daughter of God, when God says that he has purpose in the midst of our life, when God says that we are forgiven as far as the east is from the west, when God says that our eternity is sealed in, in, a, in a glorious place at the right hand of God, when God says something in our life, are we walking in those promises and living as if we truly believe it? Otherwise, we're navigating our lives in constant fear like, my, like our kids would if they didn't know if God would provide, if they didn't know that I would provide, if they didn't know that I loved them, if they didn't know that I would protect them. If my kids had to live in that state, it would hinder their growth. It would hinder their development. It would hinder their relationship with me and with all the people around them. But because we live as Christians at times not believing the promises of God, it affects our growth as Christians. It affects the way we serve in the local church. It affects the way we treat each other. Because if we feel like hated Christians, how much will we hate Christians around us? If we don't feel loved and accepted by God, how much do we want to make other people not feel loved and accepted by God? If God doesn't have any place for me, he definitely doesn't have any place for you, which turns us into bitter, angry Christians. That is not the people God's called us to be. That is not what God's provided for us. And there's a confidence that we can walk in, not only believing in God, but believing his promises. Church, God has greater things for us than to just come in here and to sing some songs about a God who lives, but he has bigger things where we step out and we begin to live as if we believe that God, that we believe the songs that we sing, that that grace is amazing, that his name is powerful. That it breaks every chain and bondage that is holding me back. That there's no matter what sin or mistake I've made, what sin or mistake I find myself in now, or what sin or mistake I might fall into as I move out of this room, that God has a purpose and he has power for me as a Christian, as a believer, when I have put my faith in the work of Jesus on the cross, that nothing takes that away. And if we're convinced, and if there's anyone in our lives or any church or any leader that would convince us of anything else, they're wrong, and they're heretics, and it's apostasy. Grace alone through faith alone. Because what promises was, were, was Abraham confident in? I'm sorry, I'm going a little long, but what promises was Abraham trusting in? In Genesis 22, 18. He says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You know, there were some immediate promises that Abraham would experience, like the birth of his son Isaac, that God said, I will give you a son. Abraham got to experience that. But Abraham would not experience his offspring in the nations of the earth being blessed. He had confidence that God was going to carry through. He had confidence that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And it's by that that he was saved. And it's by that that we're revealed a faith, a true saving faith. Because we know that through that faith, Abraham continued to move. Abraham continued to communicate with God. Abraham continued to walk. Church, 
Church, we have to have belief that God will accomplish His promises beyond what we can contribute to or do. Because listen, Abraham did nothing to contribute to the promises that God would, would accomplish other than just walk in obedience. God was going to accomplish what He was going to accomplish. Walking in the end for us to walk in the assurity that comes with belief that God will save, that God will provide, and that God will empower. But I think even more than speaking of things in future tense, because I think as, as Christians we tend to do that a lot. We tend to talk about a lot about what God will do or what God has done. But church, let's believe in His promises. Let's believe His promises today and speak of those things in present tense. That God is saving. That He is saving me, even as a believer. That He is saving. That He is providing. That He is empowering. It's not just for the future tense. And it's this idea that we've talked about before. It's the what has already happened, but what has not yet happened. So the already is what God is still doing. Church, faith is a process that He is working us through. And that I pray, as I finish up, I pray this morning that we would not leave with any less confidence in the faith, in our weak, broken faith, bringing us into the presence of a holy God that continues to save us, that we are not only saved in a moment, that God is saving us, that He is perfecting us, that He is completing us through our whole life. And I pray that the confidence of that process will lead us into gospel work in our families, in our church, in our community, in our workplaces, that that promise, that believing that God and the promises of His present work will lead us into the, the things and the, the, the good that He has for us in our lives. I pray that this morning. I, and I pray that if you feel as if your spirit has been quenched, I pray that you ask God to forgive you of your sins and you ask Him, God, stoke the fire of my spirit. God, help me to begin again to see the truths of what you have for me in your grace, in my new birth, in the workings of my salvation, in the preservation of my assurance. God, do those things in me.